all our staff, especially on the trauma side, they deploy all the time. So that's at the forefront of their minds is how do I communicate this training and this environment to my residents who we haven't deployed yet, but we will be very shortly. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. Captain Justin Sleeter is a graduating Chief Resident in General Surgery at Brook Army Medical Center with further training planned in trauma and critical care. In this episode, Captain Sleeter discusses a behind-the-scenes look into his training as a general surgery resident at the only DOD Level 1 Trauma Center. He discusses his pathway in Air Force Medicine and the factors that influenced his decision to become a surgeon. I'm your host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon, and hosting with me is Dr. Kevin Canary, active duty vascular surgeon. You can find out more about Captain Sleater and previous guests on our website at wardocspodcast.com. Welcome to Wardocs. Today we are excited to have Captain Dr. Justin Sleater as our guest. Justin is a general surgery chief resident at Brook Army Medical Center, Department of Defense's only level one trauma center. Justin, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be on here, especially as one of the first residents part of the podcast. Justin, you attended the Air Force Academy. What was the process of getting into the academy? Well, it's actually an interesting story for, for me. Not a lot of people know this, but I actually didn't get into the academy my first time around for application. When I, when I was younger, I was always interested in surgery, but back then I didn't realize that you could have a career path in medicine and the military at the same time. I just wasn't aware. And my kind of first experience and exposure to the Air Force Academy is actually through my older brother who got in. He wanted to be a pilot and that's ended up what he ended up doing. But back then, since he went there, being his younger brother, I automatically was like, no, I don't want to go where he goes. And then, but the more and more I saw him part of that experience and I was inspired by what he was doing and being able to go out there on trips and him being part of something bigger than himself was really a cool idea and kind of changed my mentality of what I could do. And then when I found out that you could do medicine and military, I was like, yeah, this is what I want to do. So I started a little bit later in my junior year of high school, trying to get everything ready, but Seemingly, everything yeah, fell into place. I had the extracurricular activities. I needed the grades, and I was able to get those congressional interviews. And so I was really excited, and I thought I had a pretty good chance of getting in. And so when I got my initial letter coming back saying I wasn't accepted to the academy, I was actually very devastated. And then I was even more so when I found out that it was actually due to a medical disqualification from a mistake that was in my record. It was uh, very disappointing. That mistake was ultimately corrected, but it wasn't corrected in time for me to be able to matriculate into the academy that first year round. So I ended up going to Baylor University in the ROTC program with almost a full ride there and then reapplied after encouragement for the academy saying you pretty much get around in the second time. And it actually ended up being, you know, in retrospect, the best thing that could have ever happened to me. Having a year of college before we go to the academy, having that year of maturity and growth, I was really able to hit the ground running when I got there and really focus on what I wanted to do, which was apply and be a good applicant. So tell us, when you went to the Air Force Academy and you were a cadet, were your sights set on medicine or did you want to be a pilot like your brother and most of the people that go to the Air Force Academy are thinking about becoming pilots? Yeah, it's true. I mean, the vast majority do. And I think it's close to two thirds end up going into pilot training and some type or other. But no, I from the beginning, I wanted to do medicine. And that, that was kind of my goal from, from the onset. 
So what was the process for you then to become a physician at the Air Force Academy? So the Academy has a unique process. It, it may have changed somewhat in the past few years, but they have a committee. It's called the HPAC Committee or the Health Professions Advisory Committee. They really want to make sure that if, if you're a cadet applying to medical school, that you have a really good chance of getting in because they only have so many congressional slots that they're allowed to send each year to medical school. And my year was 11. When I looked it up for this interview, it looks like it's about 18. And that's roughly out of a, a thousand cadets a year. So only a small percentage is even allowed to go to medical school. And so when you go through this process, they uh, require like a personal essay. You have to have at least like a 3.6 GPA, at least that's what it was back then, some letters of recommendation. And then both your major program, as well as the superintendent of the academy has to approve you to apply. And so that's all just before you can even apply to medical. And then you sit down in front of their HPAC interview board. And then once you get through all that, then you go through the process like everyone else in the civilian sector. And usually you're pretty competitive, I think, because they, they kind of weed out the people at the academy that even get to that step. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the interview process while being a cadet. And then how did you decide on... HPSP over Uniform Services University, and why did you choose the University of Southern California Keck School of Medicine? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. So I, I did apply to both the Uniform Services University as well as multiple HPSP and just other civilian schools. And I was actually lucky enough to get into both uh, USU and Keck. Keck had a great reputation, but really the real kind of deciding factor for me was Keck being a civilian school versus the uniformed services being military school, coming from the academy where I was just did four years of living and breathing the military life, I thought I would grow more and maybe have more breadth and experience if I was able to experience a medical school in the civilian sector. And I thought it would help me professionally. So that, that was the main reason that I did that. So when you're a medical student, what kind of military activities did the Air Force have you doing? There honestly pretty hands-off when you're going through HPSV medical school. Um, I was able to have some good experiences. Since I went through um, the academy, I didn't have to go through like the officer training, basic training kind of course that a lot of my colleagues in HPSP did, but I was able to do some other cool training. One of them was called the Aerospace AMP 101 course. And so I did that, I think about halfway through medical school. It's a 10-day course that kind of introduces uh, students to aeromedical standards, physiology, hyperbaric medicine, and then like the basics of military aviation fundamentals. It's a 10-day course. You go out there, you get to be part of a pressure chamber. And at the end of that first week, you actually get to fly in an aircraft. So that, that was really exciting. But other than that, most of the time in medical school is just focusing on medicine. So tell us about how you ended up at BAMC. What are the options when you're a medical student as far as matching into general surgery in the Air Force? And uh, what the interview process like? So my, my process was a little unique. Going through medical school and towards the end, I knew for sure I wanted to go into surgery. But I was coming from the academy. I didn't quite have the right appreciation of um, what it meant to be an operational provider in the military. All my colleagues from the, the academy, most of them were pilots. They're on the front line. They're, they're operational. And I thought at the time that the only way that I could be operational when I was younger was to be actually a, a flight surgeon because that's the only experience that most of the advisors had me had. And so even though I knew ultimately I wanted to do surgery, I had just had a flawed mindset that the only way to be on the front line and be on the point of the spear was to be a flight doc first, which obviously is, is not the case. And so initially, as my fourth year medical student, I was going out and interviewing with the intent of getting into surgery. But after doing a year or two of, of flight surgery, 
And so the process for me was a little bit different. I went up to Travis Air Force Base and then obviously I, I, as fourth year, rotated at Brook Army Medical Center as really the advisors at Bamsey that really showed me kind of the, the mistake in what I was thinking. And the main kind of mentor for that was Dr. Proper, one of the vascular surgeons at the time here and the chief residents. And so then when I found out that I actually know as a surgeon, that's the way to be operational. That's the way to be on the front line taking care of the men and women. And since surgery was what I wanted to do, that's kind of when I, I flipped kind of those goals and applied straight just for surgery here. And given the mentorship I had here, it was an easy selection for me to rank Bamsey. Well, thank goodness Dr. Proper convinced you to become a general surgeon because you're, you're so good at it. Tell us what it was like that first year when you were an intern. Take us through kind of what is the, a general surgery intern do so that our audience can understand the training process of becoming a surgeon. Well, nothing really can prepare you for that first year. You had this fire hose of knowledge in medical school, but that was all book knowledge and smarts, and you're not really applying it to patients. And that first year, you're really expected now. You're the first line of defense and taking care of all these patients on the floor. You're, you have to learn how to multitask really well and really triage who's sick and who's not sick and when do I elevate and get help. And those are all things that is challenging, I think, for anyone. So your, your main job as an intern is you're going to be rounding on your patients. You're going to be seeing them, taking care of them, putting in the orders, writing the notes, trying to get to the operating room when you can. And then on call, you know, at Bamsey, being the level one trauma center we are, there's 60 to 80 inpatients at a time on the, between all the general surgery services, vascular surgery, and trauma that you're the first doctor that's responsible for them. And so back when I was an intern, things have changed a little bit different, but we used to do kind of a night system. And so I was the first intern starting in July to be on nights for a month straight. That was that was very challenging for me, and there's a lot of weight that I didn't think was going to be as difficult as it was, but it was, it was very challenging. So as you progress up, there's a position called Surgeon of the Day, commonly called the SOD. It's probably one of the busiest jobs in the hospital, especially when you're at a level one trauma center. It's also the same name given to the postgraduate year two and three clinical years at most hospitals. So tell us about the position of the SOD and what that entails. Yeah, Definitely. It's kind of funny. We actually have a picture that floats around the resident room that goes between different SODs. And if you can imagine what it is, it's a, a picture with a whole pile of blocks that are precariously being held up by a single, thin, small block, and that's labeled the SOD. And so that's what it can kind of feel like. Um, what the job really entails, it's it's multifactorial, but you're, you're pretty much the general surgery switchboard to some degree. So all communication from the hospital, from other services, usually goes through you first. And then you kind of have to triage where that needs to go and how that get, needs to get taken care of. You're the first point of contact for all new consoles that are coming in through the emergency room. And overnight, that is goes beyond just general surgery, but also to vascular surgery and every trauma patient that comes in as well. So your main roles are admitting these patients, you're getting them ready for surgery. So you're doing all the preoperative steps and orders and medications, you're consenting them. And then at the same time, you're responsible to actually start learning how to operate really a lot of years. And so you're trying to be in the OR. In terms of traumas, you're the bedside assist, you're doing the trauma bay procedures. And then on top of all that, you're the first resident that's responsible that the interns are doing their job too. So it can be a lot of weight kind of on, on that position, but it's a lot of growth and probably one of the most important jobs in the hospital. Yeah, I think one of the biggest things that I found was that your pager as an intern is going off constantly by questions from nurses on the wards in the ICU. And you're excited to finally hand that off only to find that you have a pager that is now being 
paged even more frequently by emergency rooms and people with consults around the hospital. They're even more complex than the ner- questions the nurses. That sort of what your experience was. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, you. I mean, you may trade off maybe a few less pages, but they're going to be more complex. You have to think a lot more. They challenge you more, and a lot more work is involved with them. So after you did that year, you did what most general surgery residents in the military do, whether that's the Army, Air Force, and even the Navy, and that's doing a research year. So the timing may differ. But typically between either second and third or third and fourth year, people do a year of research. You did yours at the Air Med Lab in San Antonio, Texas. Can you tell us about that year and about your research? So the Air Med Lab is part of the Institution for Surgical Research uh, connected to BAMC and is a decent sized lab. The The main focus of the lab was on new innovations in the field of uh, reconstruction and kind of battlefield wounds. How can we optimize these things and do a translational approach from animal models to humans of thought? And so in that year, there was like two main big projects as part of. One was a, a bone model project that the thought is with devastating bone injuries from blast injuries or whatever they are, you can have a, a huge defect in the, these extremities that can be very challenging to heal and to heal with good function. So what our lab was trying to work using a swine or a pig model and using their fibula as a live tissue model was to create this hydrogel carrier. It's pretty much this porous scaffold that we infuse with nanoparticles that could deliver cytokines such as GF-beta-1, which are just really cell receptors that help with decreasing inflammation and hopefully making the, the strength and the growth of the bone come back better. And so then we would put the scaffoldings into these bony defects. And then after a few months of the pigs kind of healing with that, taking a look at, at our product, and we really did find that we had increased bone growth at one month, less inflammation, and no ectopic bone growth, which can be a big problem with these devastating. Um, we, we did some other projects as well that were kind of in the younger ages in the same kind of thread. One was a limb preservation one. And with blast injury, sometimes it might not just be a bone injury, but you, you can potentially have complete loss of limb. And trying to save these limbs and salvage them very challenging in austere environment when you don't have a vascular surgeon or an orthopedic surgeon on hand right away that could do a complex limb salvage surgery. So the idea was, how can I take this limb that might have been dramatically separated from the patient and keep it alive longer other than just putting on a, on a box of ice? And so we had created this Ulysses, so much as a pain system that we actually cannulated the artery in the vein and perfused it through an oxygenated solution to try to keep it alive for up to 24 hours to be able to reimplant at a later date. So th- those are the kind of the projects I was lucky enough to, to be involved with. Wow. That's a fascinating and important research. So did you get to travel for this research or any of your other projects? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's one of the perks of this year is if you do a lot of work and you put a lot of time in, you get you get the benefit of being able to go to some cool places, do some cool conferences. So we were able to travel and present at the Boswick Burn Symposium, which is held annually in Maui, um, and got to present there and see a lot of leaders in the field there, and then to the Marin College of Surgeons that year. And then the following year, one of my smaller projects, I was working more involved in kind of an austere damage control and like designing a ultra mobile like surgical set. And I was lucky enough to be able to go out to the Special Operations Medical Association conference and present that in Charlotte. So you definitely can travel, meet new mentors and really kind of start seeing what you want to do with your career. So after you finish research year, you then progress to your senior years of being a general surgery resident. Can you take us through 
a typical day with you being a chief resident in general surgery? We kind of split the chief resident role. You kind of transition as a fourth year and then you truly roll into a chief as as a fifth year. I think this is, in my mind, the the toughest year of growth and responsibility for us, and, and at least in our program. And those younger years, as you're kind of coming through, they can be slightly awkward because you go from having less or more autonomy, depending on what rotation you're on. But finally, as you roll into becoming chief, you truly start getting autonomy in terms of patient care, both on the floor, but also more importantly, in the operating room. And it's the first time where you don't have a senior level resident that you can really look up to or get get guidance from. And so you're doing much more of an apprenticeship role with the staff at that level, and you're engaged much more with the staff. And so I really think you you learn a lot more from, from those experiences. It's more of a make or break year. In terms of the the structure of kind of being being a chief, it can change from year to year in, t- in terms of what rotations you're on. But really, the the goal is to have a longer period of time where you're in charge of one rotation, and so they go to being about ten weeks where you're really the chief of that rotation. And the goal of that final year is to transition to being a staff, and so it's more of a leadership role. Each becomes a much bigger priority and learning to become a surgical educator and really making sure that you're now no longer learning a procedure for the first time, but really trying to master it and now teach it to those below you. Can you tell us a little bit about what it's like being in the trauma bay at BAMC, Chief? See, we're, we're the only military level one trauma center and every, every center I've been at does things a little bit different. But when you're the chief on call or as a trauma chief, pretty much how we run the, the trauma bay is we follow ATLS, we have our teams, and you as a, the chief, you're ultimately responsible for everything that happens and that trauma bay and the decisions that go on. We work very closely with our ER colleagues and uh, they will help run the initial resuscitation, but you're pretty much standing right next to them and helping them guide as they're usually like a second or third year resident. And so you want them to get that experience. But if the patient starts getting sick or if they need an urgent procedure, both in the ER or to the operating room, that's when you kind of really step in and take over for the team. And then you're going to be directing that resuscitation, directing your younger residents to chest tubes or other procedures or ED thoracotomies, and then making that decision of what injury needs to be addressed first and what patient needs to go to the operating room. Our uh, staff give us a lot of autonomy and give us all the skills and all the tools we need to succeed, but it makes it a very rewarding experience. Yeah, so you used a term that I think is very appropriate for general surgery residency, and you used the term apprenticeship. And I do think that general surgery residency and probably all residencies operate on a model of graduated apprenticeships, where as you meet different milestones, you then are given more and more autonomy with the goal being when you finish that you're able to practice independently on your own, essentially from day one from graduation. But you're specifically in a general surgery training program. So tell us how you would prepare for a surgical operation that you might do with one of your staff? And they give us an example. So how each individual may approach it might be a little bit different. But for me personally, it's I take full responsibility. And so when I have a case coming up, my mentality is that I should be able to do this procedure if the staff were, for whatever reason, dropped dead or whatever else in the operating room that like I could do do the case. And so I need to know the patient inside and out in terms of their background, their past surgeries, their comorbidities, and what I need just to get them safely to the operating room. So I take full responsibility in terms of getting them there safely. And then for the case itself, really knowing every step of that case, knowing the anatomy, reviewing that, 
and being prepared that to do every part of that that case is kind of how I look at it. And then specifically, if it's something that I'm trying to learn on, or there's areas that I have weakness, or if I'm with a specific staff that I think they do something well, I try to formulate those questions or try to watch closely what what they do, so I can learn from that and emulate it. Because I know this this last year really is about trying to perfect these things, and you won't always have that staff there to to work with you anymore. Gets through a typical day. What time do you get there? What do you do throughout the day? Do you eat? And when do you get to finally go home? Yeah, I mean, the, the days do vary, but a, a typical operating day, which I think are the more exciting ones. Um, so I try to actually work out in the morning because as a chief, I have a little bit more time. So I'll, I'll usually wake up around five in the morning and try to get in like a 20, 30 minute workout in. I try to get to the hospital a little bit before six. How early I get depends on how many inpatients I have on the team. But then I'll meet up with my my junior residents, my interns. We'll go see the patients. We'll start putting plans in, taking care of them. I'll staff those plans with my attendings all before academics, which we have around seven. And then getting prepared for the operating room, which cases start at 7.30, three to four cases a day on average on our operating days. And we'll take care of our patients, operate, have fun, discharge or admit them as appropriate. And then really you try to eat between cases when you can and sometimes can sometimes it's just a snack but you're you're there to take care of the patients you're there until the work's done and so on a typical day that can that's usually probably like five to six ish but it can be much later if the cases take longer or or if you're on call so it's i actually like that it's varied and that's not the same thing every day but that's it's you can't, can't really put a number on it so you mentioned something just now academics and you've had the experience of being at academics at both BAMC, as well as university and other outside rotations as part of the general surgery residency program. Tell us first about academics and then what do you think is unique about the academics that you get because you're in a military training program? Learning obviously never, never ends. And academics is very important, especially as busy surgeons to have a a set time, whether it be every week or every day, depending on your program really focus on on the new learning, the new papers that are coming out, and then to kind of per- perfect your practice because we you can be busy enough where if you don't have that time set aside, you'll never continue to grow. So I think it's one very important. What's unique about our program, one, both being a military, but then compared to other programs I've seen is most programs or institutions have one solid day of academics. We historically have, do academics multiple days a week, which I think is one, a, a good way to keep of that mindset that I'm learning every single day and then getting together with your residents every day outside of the OR, I think is powerful. But the unique thing about being at the military is a lot of our academics is focused on, okay, well, yes, this is, we learn about this surgical pathology in this surgical case, but how does this change when I'm in an austere environment or when I don't have all those resources or if my patient population is different? And so, so having that focus and kind of bringing it back to home, which ultimately is my goal is be the best surgeon I can to take care of these men and women that are in harm's way. My most favorite case is probably trauma exploratory laparotomies or trauma vascular case. I think they're my favorite because they're also can be some of the most challenging. The reason I say that is these trauma patients that come in, they're always complex. They have multiple patient factors going forward. You're usually polytrauma patients. So you have to be thinking about their physiology, their resuscitation. Am I going to be focusing on a damage control surgery versus more definitive surgery and the timing of the interventions for their different injuries? 
And every injury pattern, um, while there are some patterns for the patients are unique and how you approach that can change every time. And so that variability is fun, thinking through how do I give this patient the best outcome with the injury they have in the context of the complexity of their presentation um, is very enjoyable to me. And I think I see that both in and exploratory laparotomy cases, but as well as a trauma vascular case. I also do enjoy robotic surgery, and we do at at Brooklyn Medical Center have a great robotics program. And I think some of our residents now are graduating with more robotic cases than some of our near staff have. And so those cases, the technology is just fun. So you graduate in about 10 days. When you look back over your residency, what are one or two memorable cases that you remember from your time in residency at BMC? There's been so many good cases. It's more of the cases when I kind of was transitioning from a third year to a fourth year, and I just had taken over as like the acute care surgery chief and the trauma chief and really having that autonomy. And one case in in particular that I can remember was a poor individual that was, was shot with a high caliber rifle through the abdomen. And he had devastating injuries, duodenal injuries, pancreas injuries, but like taking him from the start all the way to to the end of his care and it being my plan, my operative plan, my reconstruction plan, and then the months thereafter of taking care of him through it, that's been really memorable to me. And then seeing him when he finally got out of the hospital, we touch so many patients, thousands of patients that we deal with, but only as we kind of progress do we start getting to the point where these patients that we take care of, you were the primary person involved in their care throughout. And so, so th- th- that's probably one of the most memorable. So you'd mentioned that during academics, one of the things that happened is the discussion revolves to military-specific items in the pathology. Do you find that to be the same case when you're doing an operation at BAMC and one of these trauma patients that they're, you're trying to be described at what you might have to do if you're, say, by yourself in an austere environment? Definitely. I mean, more often than not, like all, all our staff, especially on the trauma side, they deploy all the time. So that's at the forefront of their th- minds is how do I communicate this training and uh, this environment to my residents who we haven't deployed yet, but we will be very shortly. And so most of the cases that, that come in, there's some discussion of, okay, well, what, what if didn't have CT scanner? What if you don't even have an ultrasound? Like, how do you decide what you get next? Would you do damage control? Would you shunt the different things that we talked about? I've been fortunate enough. I uh, matched into trauma critical care fellowship actually here at, here at Brook Army Medical Center. So I'll be pursuing that for another two years. And uh, ultimately, what I'm really interested in is uh, trying to be on as operational as possible. And and through that, I've been in touch with special forces units that that do some really cool stuff in some austere places. So that that's my ultimate goal is to try to matriculate one of those. But what was your most memorable vascular surgery case? Honestly, I think the one, and I'm not saying it just because it was with you, Dr. Kazi, but it was that isolated GSW to the lower extremity injury patient that came in when I was on vascular this year. And then Patrick McCarthy was on trauma. And so being able to walk and do the case with him, so fourth year and a fifth year, and you pretty much just let us do the case from start to to finish. And being able to mentor him was was really cool because normally as a chief, you're walking an intern or a two through, but you're kind of limited what you can do to some degree because one, you want to do the case, but also you don't want the, the, the skill set can be different. So like being near residents working on a case like that is more like working with a colleague. And that I think that was a really memorable experience and that patient did well. So Yeah. So I don't, I don't want to get you or me in trouble, but 
you can clarify for the audience. I, I scrubbed the entire case and basically sat, looked over your shoulder and <laughs> gave you some tips the whole time. Isn't that correct? Yeah, that's sir. That's that's correct. They were very good tips, though. <laughs> good, good. So what would you tell someone who is thinking of pursuing a career in general surgery, uh, military general surgery specifically? To me, I think the decision be a military general surgeon is really dependent on your desire to be part of the military and to serve in the armed forces. There's a lot of ways to be a surgeon. So if that's your goal through civilian and military, they both do awesome things. But the most important thing for the military is that you really need want to serve and treat the women and, and men in the armed forces to be happy doing it. There's a lot of barriers and there's a lot of challenges unique to the, the military lifestyle and system with deployments and everything else. And so if you're not happy training and do those things, um, I don't think that that's necessarily the right decision for you. So I think it really comes down to that initial idea of service and service specifically in our armed forces. Yeah, that's great, Justin. Well, I just want to congratulate you again, and Kevin does as well, on your completion of general surgery residency. Six years is a long time to train to do anything, and you have volunteered to do yet another two more years of training, just just like we did. And and in the end, I think you'll be happy happy for doing it. But I really do thank you for your military service, and thank you for joining us today. Dr. Kazi, it's, it's really been a pleasure, and Dr. Kinnick, appreciate it. Thank you for listening to War Docs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. War Docs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts, and rate and review this episode, and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team War Docs on WarDocsPodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, War Docs has you covered. Spread the word.